96. The text listed in your bulletin is Acts chapter 25, verses 13 through chapter 26, verse 18. However, um, most of 25 is uh, Festus uh, trying to explain why he is has held Paul for so long in jail uh, to his superior Agrippa and uh, Bernice. And so I thought we would just begin with 26, beginning with verse 1. Uh, this is Paul's um, defense um, of, of his uh, faith. He is, of course, uh, as we've been moving through Acts, he's been arrested uh, and um, is using, again, his personal testimony um, to uh, defend himself against these false charges of heresy that are being brought against him by the Jews. Here's what's interesting. is We keep running into him giving his testimony, and each time we are faced with this question that he raises, this question of what is a Christian? And with so much confusion in our culture today about what it means to be a Christian, I'm glad that this question is once before us here in the text. So I'll begin with verse 1, and we'll go through verse 18. Verse 18 is um, where we will concentrate our uh, time this morning. Acts chapter 26. Remember that this is the word of the true and living God. It is inspired inerrant, trustworthy, and authoritative for our faith and our life. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it, or why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I have this connection 
or in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the height of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone round me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me, which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray. Father, as we have now read your holy word, I pray for your help as I proclaim it. And I pray that you would also help everyone here to uh, have their eyes opened and their ears opened and attentive uh, by the work of your Holy Spirit in order that uh, they may, as Jesus um, has just said, uh, that everyone would turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. As I've already said, um, any comments this morning that I make are really going to zero in on this last verse that I read, verse 18, where Jesus summarizes the heart of the Christian faith and especially what it means to be a Christian. I find it uh, interesting, first of all, that Jesus is saying to Paul, that he is sending Paul to do something that it is absolutely impossible for Paul to do. He's saying, um, uh, verse 17, I am sending you to, verse 18, open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness from, to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is impossible for Paul to do. Paul could not open anybody's eyes. Paul could not turn anyone from the power of Satan uh, to God. This is something that only God can do. So what does it mean when it says uh, that Jesus sent Paul to open their eyes? Right off the bat, we know that those to whom Paul was sent, uh, that Jesus was sending Paul to, the Gentiles, that they needed their eyes opened. He wouldn't need to send him to open their eyes if their eyes were already open, if they were able to see everything as God wanted them to see. In other words, they were blind. But it's obvious that uh, this blindness here was not physical, but rather spiritual blindness. So, again, I ask, what does it mean for their eyes to be closed? Or to say it another way, what does it mean to be spiritually blind? Well, we read in our responsive reading just a few moments ago 
um, from Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four. He said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, to be spiritually blind, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, means that you are an unbeliever. It also means that you are unable to grasp the significance of the gospel. One commentator said that the fall has completely shuttered the windows of man's soul. I like to ask people uh, two diagnostic questions because in these questions I am able pretty easily to discern where a person is spiritually. And it usually is helpful for that person, kind of like a doctor asking you know, about where your leg hurts, you know, if he does this or if it hurts when he does that and, and things like that. And it ends up being helpful to them um, because he is able to diagnose uh, where they are and, and give them a remedy. And so I ask these two diagnostic questions to help people uh, understand where they are spiritually. The first question is pretty simple. If you died tonight, do you know for certain uh, that you would go to heaven? The second question follows along on the first. Well, let's say you did die tonight. You stood before God and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? Uh, I'm surprised how many people are not sure about that first question. Uh, the majority of people say, well, I hope that I will go to heaven. I would like to go to heaven. I think I will go to heaven. Uh, but it is a... A, a, a very sure minority who actually say, yes, I know confidently that I'm going to heaven. And um, an even greater majority of people completely blow the answer to the second question. Well, if you were standing before God and God said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Uh, even a number of people who confidently say they're going to heaven will say, well, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I haven't done these bad things like murder or whatever. And I've got good intentions. And I hear them say a lot of things about what they've done or who they are. But rarely do I hear them mention anything about Jesus Christ. And what is so surprising about that is that Jesus Christ is the Savior. No one is saved apart from Him. But yet people base their salvation on what they do, and it doesn't even occur to them to talk about Jesus or how He uh, has saved them and what He has done to save them. Now let me just reason with you for a few moments. Christianity has been around for two thousand years, over two thousand years. And really since the Gospel is also present in the Old Testament, the way of salvation has been proclaimed since the world was created, uh, since Adam and Eve uh, really first fell. And the gospel is the most important piece of information that you can know. Um, your whole eternity rests on you knowing the gospel. Um, it, it, I mean, this is... The, this, the gospel, God tells us how we can have a relationship with Him. And yet, 
how few people know what the gospel says. How few people, even people who profess to believe in the God of the Bible, really know what the content of the gospel is all about. What could possibly account for so much ignorance regarding something so important? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What this passage is saying is, People are spiritually blind outside of Jesus Christ. They cannot understand the gospel because the gospel is a spiritual subject matter. That is the reason why there is so much ignorance of the gospel. It's because people are unable to understand it because it is a spiritual subject matter. In other words... They are spiritually blind. If you are here this morning and you do not understand the gospel, it's not because you're dumb or because you're uneducated. Rather, it is because the Holy Spirit has not opened your spiritual understanding. You are living outside of a relationship with God if you do not understand the gospel. You are blinded, the Scripture says, And therefore, your soul is in great spiritual danger. But there's good news. There's very good news. Jesus told Paul here in our passage, here in verse 18, that He was going to use Paul to open people's eyes. So there's hope. God's not simply saying you're spiritually blind and there's no hope for you. He's saying there's hope. That is the whole reason why He sent Paul to the Gentiles. In fact, that's the whole reason that Jesus came here to earth. To seek and to save the lost. Why are they lost? Because they are blind. They don't know where they are. They don't know how to get to God. But Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to open the blind eyes. I even sent Paul... To, um, to proclaim this gospel to them and to use Him to open their, their eyes. And so if you are here this morning and you don't understand the gospel and you're hearing me say that you are spiritually blind, I want to tell you there's great hope for you. Because you are here this morning and you are hearing about this gospel. I don't believe that is an accident. So I want you to encourage you to listen up rather than be offended. In the quietness of your soul, I want you to beg God to give you understanding as we can cover these next four points. And I know it's 12 o'clock, but as someone said to me this morning, uh, tomorrow is a holiday, so we'll go a little long today. The second point that I want to make, and there's an outline on the back of your bulletin if you're interested. The second point is Jesus Christ came to deliver people from moral darkness into the light of righteousness. The greatest reason why we are spiritually blind is because our hearts are morally dark. 
The heart is the center of a, of a person's soul. And the Bible says that the heart, apart from Jesus Christ, is spiritually dead. The Bible calls a spiritually dead heart a heart of stone, Ezekiel chapter 36 and Ezekiel also chapter 12. Um, it's called dead or it's called stone-like because it has no desire to pursue God. You know, when we have a funeral here and if a casket is up here on the, the communion table, I could go up to that, that, dead, um, that dead body and say, dead body, I can make you a millionaire if you'll sit up and take this money. I've written you out a check for a million dollars. Well, I don't have a million dollars, so you know this is a, a kind of an example that doesn't completely fit. But I could offer them whatever my life savings all day long. They would never reach up and take that money because they are spiritually dead. Or they are physically dead. Um, if they did reach up, I would probably <laughs> run out of the building. But... Um, but the reason the Bible calls our hearts spiritually dead is because they do not pursue God. Um, and, and it's quite incredible to think that a person created by God would say to Him, I don't need you. I don't desire you. But that's exactly what we do when we are living without Jesus Christ. Even when people attempt to seek God without the Holy Spirit's help, what we end up doing is making a poor substitute for God so that we can then ignore Him. Well, I worship you know, this other God and uh, that is, that's, not, that's not a commendable thing where you're grasping after God or seeking after God just happen to, to take the wrong path. No. It's actually, you're substituting uh, a false god for the true God. And so the Apostle Paul says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. So the Bible doesn't say, well, I'm going to accept your good intentions. Why would people do that? Why would they be so eager to uh, fashion a false god rather than worship the true God? Well, the Bible says that spir the spiritually dead hearts do not seek after God, rather they actively despise Him. Genesis 6.5 uh, says that God looked um, and saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. There was never a time for a God-honoring thoughts because the deepest thoughts of their hearts, the intentions of their hearts, were only evil continually. Why is that? Because their hearts were spiritually dead. I remember preaching one time on, a few, on Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, after the service. Um, a very sweet uh, lady came up to me and she said, I'll admit that I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. I am not as bad as that passage says I am. And I said, but it's in the Bible. And it's talking about all humanity. That would include you. You're a human, right? 
And um, she would not believe it. If you want to look up Romans 3, 9 through 18, you can look it up on your own. Why does the Bible say that the spiritually dead heart is so set against God? Because the spiritually dead heart is very alive to its own desires. It wants what it wants and it despises God if it gets in the way. That's why we read in our responsive reading in, in John 3.19. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Spiritually dead heart is like a roach or, well, we have palmetto bugs down here, I guess. It's like a palmetto bug. Uh, it likes to consume yucky stuff at night when the lights are off. But when the lights come on, it scurries off terrified into the dark corners. Have you ever wondered why bars and, and, uh, and, and such establishments are, are always so dimly lit? People desire to hide their godlessness. But again, in saying this so pointedly, and I know I'm speaking plainly, there's also some very plain and clear-spoken good news. Again, in verse 18, it says, He not only sent Paul to open their eyes, but also so that they may turn from darkness to light. Jesus came into the world to turn people who are living in moral darkness and bring them into the light of His presence. First John, I'm sorry, not First John. John chapter one, verses four and five, and then also verse nine. This is uh, John talking about Jesus. It says, "In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world." That true light was Jesus Christ when He came here into the world. He brought the light. He is the light. Being spiritually dead is to be in a very terrible condition. Aside from everything I've already said, it also means that you belong not to God, but to Satan. And that's the next point. Jesus Christ came to deliver people from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of God. Look again at verse 18. He says He came not only to open our eyes and to deliver us from darkness to light, but also to deliver us from the power of Satan and give us back to God. The heart of fallen man is the throne on which Satan reigns. And every spiritually dead person naturally is inclined to yield themselves to Him. This is an awful reality to find yourself in. And again, I know this is probably the hardest thing that I've said uh, and the hardest thing to accept so I'll remind you again of what the Scripture says. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
The Apostle Paul says, And you were dead. There's that spiritually dead heart. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and that being Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And there are many, many more passages that say exactly the same thing. This teaching is not limited to isolated um, instances in the Bible. But it's very widespread. But again, don't get so caught up in me saying that every spiritually dead person belongs to Satan. Rather, hear the promise. Hear the hope. Jesus came that He might deliver people who are who belong to Satan, who are living under His power, and deliver them to God. To deliver them into the kingdom of God. To make them children of God. The Bible says when you trust Jesus Christ, your whole existence is transformed and transferred. You now... If you are in Jesus Christ, belong to God. You have become a member of His kingdom. You, best of all, have been adopted as His own dear child. And I recognize, again, I've made some pretty difficult claims this morning and that not everyone is going to receive what I have said. However, let me remind you, that I have been very closely tied to the Scriptures. I, I don't think you can argue that I have twisted what Scripture has said here in verse 18. The reason I'm pointing this out is because if you have a disagreement with me, it's really not with me, but it is with God's Word. In saying that, if you've rejected everything I've said up to this point, I am confident that my next point will ring true because I know that everyone here in this room at some level feels guilty. Guilt hangs on the human soul like ice hangs on the North Pole. Everyone feels the pains of guilt. And for many, it drives their whole existence. And whatever degree that you personally experience guilt, I know that you experience it. I know that you know that guilt is part of the human experience. But again, here's the good news. Jesus Christ came, again here in verse 18, to bring forgiveness of sins. And His forgiveness is not some temporary, sympathetic offer of forgiveness that is here for the day, but then has to be renewed tomorrow. The forgiveness that Jesus offers is full. It is complete. And it is everlasting. And not only that, the forgiveness that Jesus offers has backbone. Let me explain. On that miserable Friday over 2,000 years ago, when our Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross, it was the fulfillment of why He came to earth. His going to the cross was not an unexpected event. 
the whole reason He chose to be born in this world, since we're just on the backside of Christmas, was to go to the cross. Jesus Himself said, The Son of Man did not come into the world uh, to be served, but rather to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And while on that cross, He submitted Himself not only to pay for sins, but the Scripture says that He Himself became sin for us. He who had lived in all eternity, in perfect holiness, completely separated from sin, without experiencing it at all, on that cross, became sin for sinners. Why did He become sin for sinners? So that God the Father could pour out the full punishment, the full extent of the punishment that, we, that our sins deserved. On that cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sins completely. I belong to Jesus Christ. All of my sins... All of my past sins, all of my present sins that I have committed today, all the sins that I will ever commit in my life have already been forgiven because they have already been paid for. I cannot be repunished for them now, nor can I be repaid for them in eternity. For God to do that would make God unjust. It would be double jeopardy. And that's what Jesus offers to all who come to Him. Let me pile on. He, offer, he also offers eternal life. He also offers peace of conscience. He also offers adoption into His own family. Listen closely to John chapter 1, verses 11-13. through 13. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. He came to His own people, they did not receive Him. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed on His name, He gave right to become children of God. My last point, and I will make it quickly. Jesus Christ came to deliver people from unholy lives into lives that are lived for God. This last benefit of being a Christian is often overlooked. Jesus came to deliver people from unholy lives so that they could then live lives for God. Jesus makes us into new, cre cre uh, new creatures with new desires. When we become a child of God, we, we are changed. I became a Christian in college. And I had a lot of bad habits. I had a lot of bad practices. I went from living for myself to now becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And I would not have had the discipline to change my life. But all of a sudden, my desires changed. And then my, my actions began changing because my desires changed. I didn't know it at the time, but what was happening was God was at work in me. He was changing me. And it was happening without my knowledge. People could see the difference. My mom could see the difference. My mom didn't know what was happening to me. 
And it was a remarkable thing. I was a new creature. God delivered me from my unholy life and was working desires in me to cause me to live a holy life. Why did I name this title, The Work of the Holy Spirit? I've barely even mentioned the Holy Spirit. The reason why is all these things that I have just listed now uh, before you. Why Jesus came to deliver people from spiritual blindness, to deliver people from moral darkness into the light of His righteousness, to deliver people from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of God, to deliver people from their guilt into the forgiveness of sins, to deliver people from unholy lives into lives lived for God is something that you cannot do. But you go to Jesus and He will do it in you. You don't take a bath to come to Jesus to let Him clean you up. You don't get your life in order first. Rather, you come to Him and say, Jesus, I can't, but I need You. I want to to trust in You. And He starts working. And He works by His Holy Spirit. Paul couldn't do any of this. God was using the Holy Spirit as He used, used the Holy Spirit in Paul to bring about these changes. So the question is, are you in Jesus Christ? If you are, all these promises are yours and they cannot be broken. If you're not, the condition that I have just described is yours as well. But there's great hope because Jesus offered Himself on the cross for sinners. Will you flee to Him? Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask for Your uh, grace. We ask for Your presence. We ask for Your Holy Spirit to be at work. And I pray that all here, under the sound of my voices, I hope that I have accurately uh, proclaimed God's Word and all its truthfulness that You would then use Your Word by your, by the power of Your Spirit and work in all of our lives and help us to trust Jesus with all our hearts. We pray in His name. Amen.